Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. The pandemic created untold challenges for students, including the youngest learners. When we went into remote learning, a lot of students would say, I just miss seeing my friends. On today's show, we hear from two teachers about how they're helping their students readjust to in-person learning. And we get an update on a man who escaped Afghanistan with his family, hoping to make his way back to Colorado. That's coming up. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Erin O'Toole. In August, as the U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan, Mahmoud Shamsi and his family went into hiding. Shamsi had worked for the Afghan government, and the Taliban was looking for him. He feared for his life, and his phone was his lifeline. On the other side were people like Kelsey Bond, a friend in Fort Collins. I immediately hang up the phone, and I just have this moment of, like, If he's going to die, then I have to try everything I can. Bon helped launch a campaign to evacuate Shamsi, his wife, who's a doctor, their two young girls, and Shamsi's sister. Eventually, they got plane tickets, but initially could not get past the airport's guarded gates in Kabul. My kids were screaming and crying like hell. My wife was screaming and had to pull her hand and... She was pulling my sister's hand and I was holding one of my kids and trying to push our way and somehow we made it. KUNC's Michael DeOana brought us this story two months ago and he is back with us now. Hi, Michael. Hi. We know from your initial reporting that Shamsi and his family got out of Afghanistan, but what has happened since? Well, you know, he's a former Fulbright scholar who studied for his MBA at Colorado State University and he was hoping to come home to Fort Collins. But the family got on the first flight they could, a humanitarian mission from Poland. Are you in a cafe now in, in Krakow? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, just outside the uh, apartment. Shamsi is talking to me on Zoom from Krakow. After a routine quarantine and a refugee orientation, Shamsi found an apartment for his family. He says he'll soon have paperwork to find a job and travel in Europe. And he credits Poland and its people with saving his life. He's full of gratitude, but if it were up to him, he'd still be in Afghanistan. For me, you know, the only country I saw myself, my future, my everything was Afghanistan. He touches on the history of his homeland, how the Taliban brought harsh Islamic fundamentalism to Afghanistan in the mid-1990s until the U.S.-led invasion of 2001. Now Afghans like Shamsi, who stood for democratic ideals, who advocated for women's rights, would be targets if they returned. I don't think that, you know, my lifetime would be enough to to return. And, uh, you know, we we have the saying, Yakhanara, means a person who has one home or one country has one home or one country. A person who doesn't have one home or one country has a lot of home and a lot of countries. I've been trying to 
make myself believe. So if he can't live in Afghanistan, I don't want to be anywhere else but Colorado because I, I feel like that's that's where I can you know, have friends and I can have families who would be in touch with me and like I wouldn't feel alone. Specifically, he'd choose Fort Collins, and there are people here who would love to welcome Shamsi and his family, including Hassad Aziz, a clinical professor of management at CSU's College of Business. I would say pretty cosmopolitan, uh, very much a person who enjoys new experiences and uh, has a very rich view of the world in terms of understanding different perspectives. I find him quite thoughtful and empathetic. Aziz knows Shamsi from the university's impact program, where students devise plans for sustainable ventures that aim to solve social, environmental, health, and other pressing problems. Aziz was raised in Pakistan and born in Peshawar, which is close to the Afghan border. I know a little bit about Afghanistan. I appreciate the culture. Uh, I appreciated the music when I was growing up. Uh, Afghanistan was the source of some very good performers, musicians. Now he sees a chance to help Shamsi and how Shamsi can help Colorado. Mahmoud has qualifications and experience that uh, he would be a catch for any, uh, for many organizations uh, in, in the U.S., so I've been I've been advocating for him at CSU in terms of thinking of him as a candidate for several jobs and so on. This potential job offer could get Champsey and his family into the United States, but it's easier said than done, according to Jamie Crawford, an immigration attorney with Back in Law in Denver. What we are trying to do with Mahmoud and anybody in his situation is identify: Are there more uh, traditional immigration remedies? that they might be able to pursue. So something based on family relationships or uh, employment opportunities in the U.S. Crawford volunteered to work pro bono after being contacted through university networks. She says the potential of a CSU job certainly helps. One of the really cool things about U.S. immigration law is that there are options for people that would bring benefits to the U.S., whether we're talking culturally or economically. And so If he has an employer who is willing to petition for a visa on his behalf, then that's certainly something we can pursue. However, the U.S. immigration system is notoriously complex and slow. While a special case could be made to rush paperwork, Crawford says that's rare. That's unfortunately the case. I think it is most likely going to be two years or longer. Even though Mahmoud Shamsi and his family are safe in their apartment, life remains unsettled. A month ago, we were staying in another home, and now we're staying in another home, and who knows where we will be next month or six months or a year. Also not not good because, you know, you, you, you feel like you're just a traveler. You're just passing by and, you know. He pauses with a smile and raises his eyebrows and shoulders as if to say, what else can I do? I ask if he feels whether he's recovered from the trauma of his last days in Afghanistan. In a way, I've, I haven't recovered, and in a way, I have. Like I have recovered because the memory of that situation, you know, of the past few days doesn't bother me anyway, and that much. Uh, but what has happened since then in Afghanistan and the uh, situation affecting friends and families, that I cannot disconnect from myself and like, 
I suffer with them, you know, I cry with them, I feel pain with them. So I can't say I've recovered, but, but I have recovered. And Aaron uh, Shamsi says life for him and his family goes on. It may be unsettled, but they're safe. That's KUNC's Michael DeYuana. Michael, thank you so much for updating his story for us. You're welcome. Sharing, forging friendships, phonetics, and early reading. These are some things we might work on in preschool or kindergarten. Many of us were fortunate to get these lessons in bright, welcoming classrooms surrounded by our peers. But for young students who went through classes remotely over the last year because of the pandemic, these skills had to be absorbed through a computer screen. Most schools in Colorado are back to in-person learning, which for some students has meant a return to a routine closer to normal. But young students who spent their formative preschool, kindergarten, or first grade year at home are experiencing a more stark adjustment. We're joined now by two teachers who are helping their young students navigate this change. Jennifer Hughes is a second grade teacher at Butler Elementary in Fort Lupton. Ivory Jarman is an English language education teacher for kindergartners at Samuels Elementary in Denver. Ivory, Jennifer, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Ivory, let me start with you. How did school change for you in the last year? What kind of when the pandemic hit and then in the months following? When the pandemic hit, I actually was pregnant. So I was uh, entering my third trimester when they shut schools down. The first transition wasn't as bad because the students that I had at the time were very familiar with the technology that we used in the classroom. So when we transitioned to being remote, it wasn't as big of a shift for them. And then my the next year I was on maternity leave and decided to stay out for the entire year um, just as a safety precaution for myself and for my daughter. Now, Jennifer Hughes, how about you? How did school change for you right after the pandemic? I noticed a large difference in the ability, the academic ability of children. They were behind their peers from previous years for the same age. They were also more social, emotionally fragile and sensitive. There seems to be a difficulty on my part of holding them accountable because they take it personally when it's not intended to be meant so. And so it's it's a fine line to walk between mentoring them and adjusting instruction without making them feel like they've done something wrong. Well, I want to talk a little more about the return to school this year. Jennifer, how is Butler Elementary doing things differently with the kids back in person? Now that we're back in person this year, it's very much like pre-pandemic school for us. We aren't wearing masks, but we are using more technology than we have in the past. One of the positives of the pandemic was an increase in the use of technology and the comfort level of both instructors and children with technology. So they can use those platforms. As Ivory talked about Class Dojo and Seesaw. Ivory, does that kind of sound similar to your experience and or what other kinds of changes has Samuels Elementary implemented? It does sound very similar. We are still in masks and we still have a lot of those um, safety protocols in place. The biggest shift for us is we are very big on having our families and community members come into the building to do various activities. And that's 
something that we've really not been able to do because families are still not allowed to come into the building, only students. So that has been a really big shift. But um, we have really started to focus more on how that social emotional learning is throughout all parts of our day. So we do an opening community circle in the morning in every classroom. But then we are also seeing now how we can transfer some of the skills that we're learning into the academic parts of our day to really keep that really help with what Jennifer was saying, that fragile piece with their social emotional right now, so that they know that we truly care about them. We care about how they're feeling. We've also implemented a emotional social program that we use daily to help our students adjust to these changes because it can be very scary for them. Absolutely. What does that look like? Do you just have them um, sort of check in and talk about what they're feeling? For Butler Elementary, we have a curriculum called PASS, and it has lessons about emotional regulation, different types of emotions, that it's okay to feel emotions. It's how we respond to those emotions that matters. That's the first part of our conversation with educators helping their young students adjust to being back in the classroom. We'll continue in just a moment. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. Most schools in Colorado have been back to in-person instruction for at least two months now. And some young students who spent a year of preschool, kindergarten, or first grade at home are having a tougher time adjusting to being back in an actual classroom. We're talking with Jennifer Hughes, a second-grade teacher at Butler Elementary in Fort Lupton, and Ivory Jarman, an English-language education teacher for kindergartners at Samuels Elementary School in Denver. It strikes me that you you both work with kids who are in such a critical stage of early development. Could you each tell me what kinds of social and emotional skills students typically learn in your grades? Jennifer, let's start with you. They learn a lot of self-regulation, how to interact with peers. And that was one of the large differences I noticed from pre to post pandemic is that they don't often have the skills to navigate conflict. As young children, this is something they have to learn anyway, but this is especially difficult now because they don't have the words because they were in their home environment for such an extended period of time. And Ivory, I'll toss that question to you as well. What kind of social and emotional skills are students learning and, and cementing in, in kindergarten? So at Samuels Elementary, we do second step as our social emotional curriculum. And um, they start the year learning skills for learning. So it really talks about what does being a learner look like? What does it sound like? Um, they start to shift into feelings. So being able to identify how someone else is feeling through their body language and their facial cues, which has been really powerful because I think right now when they notice that somebody's upset, we've kind of shifted to what you do then when that person's upset. You know, can you be a friend and help them out? Um, Or do you see that they need space and maybe you need to leave them alone? This program, all it builds among our grade levels. And this is the third year that we've used second step. So we're really starting to see alignment through ECE all the way to fifth grade, which has been great. Well, I imagine you have students now who just have not been in a school setting or around other children their age because of the pandemic. Um, And I want to ask about that. Jennifer, 
you know, for you, what social and emotional changes have you noticed in your students who are back in person this year? I've noticed they're more excited to be in school. They really love interacting with friends. They are also very excited to do more academic tasks than in the past. So that's a shift for me because they just seem happier to be there. They have they seem happier to interact with peers and adults. And they do seem to have stronger family bases. In some cases, the families are more involved because we do have a lot of extracurricular activities. We had a heritage night recently, and there was a huge amount of involvement. So socially and emotionally, I feel like the community has really come together during this time to support our students, and we can see it in our classrooms. And Ivory, what about you? Were you noticing social and emotional changes, uh, differences in the development of your kindergartners this year? I definitely see that they are more excited to be at school. Like you were saying, you know, when you're remote, you could interact with your peers, but it's a different type of interaction, especially at this early age. They really like to give you, one example would be giving each other hugs. I've seen that a lot more. You know, when we went into remote learning, a lot of students would say, I just miss seeing my friends because it's different to see your friends on the computer than it is to see them in person. And when we did come back last year, I know students had to sit at their desk. They weren't allowed to do, you know, in kindergarten carpet, our time on the carpet, when we sit in circle, that's a huge deal. I mean, we have a group of students that miss that for a whole year because that was just not something we could do. We're talking with Jennifer Hughes, a second grade teacher at Butler Elementary in Fort Lupton, and Ivory Jarman, an English language education teacher for kindergartners at Samuels Elementary School in Denver. Jennifer, have you had to change any of your subject matter or lesson plans to fit the needs of your students this year? Absolutely, I have. I have had to really go back and revisit earlier concepts because many of the students have gaps because although their parents did their very best, if your parent had to go to work, there was no way you could be on your computer with your child all day like a teacher. So even though parents did their best, there are still huge gaps in the learning of students. And we have to fill in those foundational gaps now. So at Butler, we have a meeting intervention. We have small group time. We have what we call win time, what I need time to try to fill those gaps in as many students as we can for reading and math especially because the reading will help with the writing. We've noticed a large gap in number sense in a lot of our students that they can't tell us things that are developmentally appropriate that in years past other second graders could. Ivory, I will ask the same question to you. How did you prepare differently? I mean, really, we're seeing the same gaps that we're seeing with um, Jennifer. I think in the best part about kindergarten is this is really that foundational level. So if a student didn't go to ECE, it's not the end of the world. If they were in daycare before, you know, it's it's not the end of the world that they were just coming now. But in our first and our second grade classes, we as well have interventionists that are really trying to fill those gaps because remote learning does not lend itself to best instruction for reading. And it doesn't lend itself to best instruction for writing or for math. There's been a lot of reporting on school closures and remote learning having a greater impact on low-income students and students of color. Jennifer, have you noticed any discrepancies like that? 
Yes, I really have. I, I feel that remote learning and school closures had a much more severe effect on poor students than on middle-class or wealthy students. Parents who were able to devote more time because they didn't have to go to work or they had the resources to provide more support, those children did better online. And the ones who did not, did not do as well. So I do feel that there is definitely a disparaging effect from COVID on our demographics. Ivory, have you noticed anything similar? And and if so, what does that look like among your students? I think it was really when we first went on to um, lockdown, students who had the ability to join us for our online learning and students who did not have that ability. And I think that was really disheartening because it was this very big uncontrollable and as much as we wanted to, you know, we would make paper copies for parents who didn't have access to internet. At the time, we didn't have enough technology uh, for families. Really, if you didn't already have technology in your home, internet access, then you just weren't able to even be a part of the remote learning. We had students that just kind of disappeared. We couldn't get a hold of them. We couldn't figure out where they went. You know, as teachers, we care so much about our students and making sure that they're okay and they're safe and to just have no idea where they are was a horrible feeling. I agree completely with you, Ivory. We had the same experience and it was it was so sad to come home and not know where they were. And for some of those students, I've noticed a trend that the students that we lost contact with are not at our school anymore. I was just going to ask if they have returned. So the students that come to mind for me that really there was just no way to um, get in contact with them, they did not return. So we still don't know where they are. Some of ours returned, but some of them did not. And it is still a worry because I don't know if they went to another school. I don't know what happened to them. I think people forget teachers aren't just there, you know, handing out instruction, but, you know, you truly do um, care about the well-being of each of these children. Switching gears just a bit, Ivory, I wanted to ask about the um, Black Excellence Resolution 2019 uh, Denver Public Schools, uh, which is the district that you worked in, passed this resolution. It requires schools to develop plans to boost the success of Black students. I understand this is something you've been working on at Samuels Elementary. Can you tell us a bit about that and how how this works? Yes. So part of our Black Excellence Plan at um, Samuels has really been focused on really getting our teachers to make stronger connections with all students, but especially our black and brown students. And last year um, we took part in a book study. This year we are also taking part in another book study and really just looking at what disparities, what barriers have been in place for long, long, long time (laughs) for our um, black and brown students. We're starting to shift this year into having more action, actionable steps. So we did something called a 360 spreadsheet where it really gave teachers the opportunity to meet with students and just get to know them in in a non-academic sense and to start to make those connections with our students. And now we have our fall conferences coming up and we have kind of shifted, you know, conferences, parents usually come and just get this information. It's 
not always this like back and forth conversation. It's like, this is your 15 minutes. This is what your student did. This is what they need to do. So we're really trying to um, shift that. And we gave parents three questions for them to answer. So the three questions are, what is excellence for your child? And what is something you feel proud of? What changes would you like to see in our classroom or school and why? And what feedback do you have for me to improve your child's experience or school in general? We are using these questions really as, yes, let's talk about the successes your student has had. And let's also talk about maybe some areas to focus on. And we've opened it to all families, but we're really focusing on our black and brown students. Well, to wrap up, I, I'd like to just look toward the future a bit. I'm wondering if either of you have noticed any positive changes to education, to school systems because of the pandemic. Um, Jennifer, I'll go to you first. I do feel there have been a couple of silver linings. I do feel that both teachers and students are more technologically aware and savvy than they used to be. I've also noticed more family involvement in a lot of my families this year. They're much more curious about what I'm doing, and they're more engaged in general with the school. Um, how about for you, Ivory? Same question. Some positives, some silver linings? I think we were so driven on data, data, data. We were having these really crazy aim lines for students. And I, I really think the pandemic made everybody stop and realize that you're a student, but you're a human and you have feelings. And we all had to go through this same very difficult time together. And so, yes, academics are super important, but social skills, um, awareness of people's mental health is just as important. Jennifer Hughes is a second grade teacher at Butler Elementary in Fort Lupton. Ivory Jarman is an English language education teacher for kindergartners at Samuels Elementary in Denver. Thanks so much for talking with us and good luck to both of you this school year. Thank you for having me. Thank you. That's our show for today. I'm Erin O'Toole. Our production team includes Henry Zimmerman, Tess Novotny, Alana Schreiber, and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. Thank you so much for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 